0: Well, happy holidays, everybody, and I'd like to welcome everyone back to Digital Capital Advisors weekly podcast series, which features CEOs, investors in the ad tech and Martech spaces, affectionately known as Mad Tech. My name is Jay MacDonald, and I'm the founder, CEO, and managing partner of Digital Capital Advisors, which is our 10-year-old investment bank with offices in New York, Berlin, and San Francisco. Now, this series features some of the industry's most successful entrepreneurs. Who have built rock solid businesses that in some way have transformed the buying selling and or measuring of online advertising each podcast will last approximately 30 minutes and for this podcast we could not have a better more appropriate guest than christina prokop the co-founder ceo of iota which is the audience technology platform that enables the intelligent use of data now quick background prior to co-founding iota back in 2010 Christina's career in digital media and technology spans more than 20 years. Her extensive career includes successful stints at eBay, Marengo, and Adify. She's an American, but has been living in Germany for almost two decades. So please welcome, join me in welcoming Christina Prokop to our podcast series. Welcome, Christina.
1: Hi, Jake Reed. Thanks to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, I you know I uh, I kind of ended the intro by saying that you're an American who's been living in uh in Germany for a long time. So how did that come about? How did you end up in Germany?
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh it's interesting. I grew up in the States, uh, but actually my father uh my father was German. So he immigrated to the States when he was 19. And so I've always had this desire to f- know what it feels like to actually live abroad, you know, because I saw it through him, you know, he started a new life when he came to America. And, uh, I had just always loved traveling and loved being and, and visiting other countries. And I thought, my gosh, why, why don't I give that a try? And so I was always looking for a way in. And I was working for an ad tech company in San Francisco called Flycast. And was lucky enough, you know, it was it was a company that had international offices, including an office in in Germany. To be honest, it, for me, it didn't have to be Germany. I just wanted to get abroad, and so I was uh, working working in the account management team uh, there, and they they really needed some help training and keeping the teams um, international up to speed on on the platform and the technology. And so I really. Uh, just grabbed the opportunity and did everything I could to get my butt over, get, get my butt over there. And so here I am 20 years later, over 20 years later, still here.
0: Oh, interesting. And, and did you, because of your father, did you grow up speaking German in the household at all? Or
1: You know, it's funny. We did not. My, and even worse, my mother was a German teacher. Uh, but they tried, (laughs) I know, but they tried, they tried to start too late. Unfortunately, I think, you know, my father, it, it was before the time when I think a lot of people understood what a huge advantage is to be, to be, you know, to raise your children bilingual. And he was very much old school in terms of, I am raising my family in America and we should speak English in our home. Uh so no, uh, we, we didn't. And then I think only when we were when I was maybe like twelve, thirteen or so, they tried to start teaching us German and then it was just too late. You know, we had we had a lot of other interests. A lot of other interests rather than sitting at home studying German in our off school hours.
0: Wow, that's well, that's fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about IOTA. So you and your co-founder founded IOTA back in uh, 2010. So what what was the original problem that you were looking to solve, and and how has that evolved?
1: So when we were looking at founding the company and looking at the space and what what was going on in the U.S. at that time, it was very clear that data was going to play an absolute integral role in marketing and advertising strategies. And the U.S., you know, there were also there were already companies like Blue Sky and Exalate on the market here, um, and you know they were growing quite rapidly. And like so many, like with so many other disciplines, we just saw international was left high and dry with no no one servicing those markets. So that's really when we when we realized the importance that data will play and the unserviced markets outside of the states that's where we wanted to, uh, wanted to attack. And so we actually co-founded the company across three continents. Um, so three co-founders, uh, myself in Germany, one in Singapore and one in Sydney. And so we really started from the ground up bringing data solutions to international markets, um, from day, you know, in multiple international markets from day one. So that's really, I mean, the, what, the, what we wanted to do and, and what, all of us had a long track record of doing was bringing, bringing you know those kind of new concepts and new disciplines into into international markets and helping build them as as you know as integral a part of a part of those ecosystems as in the states.
0: So that, I mean that's fascinating because normally when you start a company, you're starting at, in one region or one one country. You know, if starting in you know starting a company is hard enough, but starting in one country, but starting in three different locales, that must have been um, had some unique challenges. What, what were they, and um, how'd you guys overcome those?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I guess it's an understatement. It was it was funny. Even one of you know a very old friend of mine, um, and an advisor to the company, you know, even a couple of years down in, into into the company, he still said. I don't know how you guys think you're going to pull this off. I'm rooting for you. I'm standing behind you. I'll help <laughs> any way I can. But like, it just, I think it is. It's really, it's a hard, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine for someone, I think, who wasn't in our position because we had been, I think that the biggest advantage that we had is we had a team the three of us had been working together for many years previously at a, at a, another ad tech company as the international management team at a company called Adify. And so we had all, we were all very deeply ingrained in the markets where we were. We all had experience bringing new ad tech and martech, um, propositions into market. And we knew each other and we knew each other's, you know, strengths and, and how, and how to, how to work with each other well across the time zones Um, from years of doing that at at the previous company. So I think had it been, it was a very unique constellation that I think you probably it would be very hard to replicate again. Uh but you know, I I think what what really helped us, I'd like to say it was all strategy, but I think it was it was, you know, part luck, part strategy, is the fact that we weren't based in one market. When you know, when you look at when you look at ad tech companies reaching a critical mass, where they become, um, you know, where where they become important for as a partner to large U.S. tech companies, the fact that we were on the ground and pushing products and market across multiple markets gave us a huge leg up in terms of prioritization and visibility with companies like Google and the Trade Desk, um, you know, and AppNexus, all these all the integration partners that we needed to get. Um, when we were originally building up our our distribution uh, pipes, it was a huge benefit to have these multi markets because you know somebody was coming. You know, Google Google Australia and Google Singapore and Google Germany and Google UK were all coming at the same time, saying we need them integrated. And if we'd only been a German company, for example, I think that would have been a lot more difficult.
0: Right, right. Uh, well, I and mean, I think obviously I didn't realize that that you guys would all work together. So the communication was uh, was more natural and seamless than uh, than if you just kind of met or hadn't worked together.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So so let's talk about um, 2020, right? Roll the tape, and here you are, a decade old, um, and uh, you're a global company, which is what you have been from the very beginning. Um, you know where are the offices located right now globally, and and where does IOTA fit in in the dynamic landscape of? Today's dynamic landscape, if you will, of data and analytics.
1: Yeah. So our our build in terms of the geographies has expanded since then, and now actually in the meantime, the U.S. is a is a very large part of our business. Um, you know, so we we opened up the the office in the U.S. about six years ago, and uh, you know it is obviously one of the quickest quickest growing and and largest parts of our business as well. But we will always have our our core belief is in is in providing global solutions and really relevant solutions for all the markets where we operate and those markets where we have teams on the ground is in we have teams in uh in Sydney in Singapore in London in Berlin and in New York and uh and on a couple on the west coast so yes we are as you can imagine also our <laughs> the hours the hours and flexibility that everyone has to uh you know, has, has has to deal with is 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 pretty pretty intense, but you know, I think that's also the beautiful thing about working in in this global environment,
0: right? And uh, so, so talk to us a little bit about some of the solutions that you do provide your customers.
1: Yeah, so so in, in you know go, uh, going back to your question of where we fit in the ecosystem, so we provide data solutions on on a couple different levels. Uh, the first and oldest part of our business is the audience targeting side. Where we work with multiple different types of data sources, those are online publishers, those are uh, providers of mobile data, those are offline data companies, market research companies, um, and we have uh, we process five point three billion profiles uh, at any given time, and out of the data out of the profiles and the associated data create audience segments for uh, for targeting and measurement and analytics um, and modeling. So a lot of different use cases. So the one, the one big area is audience targeting, you know, that's primarily using, using, um, using smart audience segments to power, um, to power more efficient advertising campaigns, um, primarily through programmatic, um, but not necessarily, um, only through programmatic. The mm-hmm. other, the other area of business is obviously, you know, this, this, the use case of data, and this is what always has fascinated me about this part of the ecosystem, is that it really breaks between these silos of disciplines in our business. Um, you know, so it's not just ad serving, it's not just display, it's not just video, only mobile, only um, uh, you know, only analytics. So the data, you know, I think what what I've always loved about this business is, this is really the possibility to find that 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 common thread that you can that you can really. Um, use to connect all of your marketing adver- advertising strategies independent of channel, independent of, of the discipline. So what we've done this year, we made a big move into, number one, making sure the data was available omni-channel. Um, so whether that's for social or mobile um, you know, or display. And also licenses, so starting to work directly with brands, letting them license our data, enabling them to license our data to um, To enhance their first-party data um, and to use the data for things like building custom audiences and for measurement and analytics, um, because you know I think the there's no question first-party data is you know always the most the unique asset that a brand has, but as you know it's it's a relatively limited in scope in terms of what you can see about those users. So the 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 more a brand knows about their user. Um, based on non-first party data, the smarter, you know, the smarter they decisions they can make. So can you, can
0: you give uh, a few examples about that? That's interesting. So the on the brand side particularly.
1: Sure. So let's say if you uh, you know, if you have uh, financial products, um if you are financial services, you may know certain things about um, about the about your customer in terms of their their gender, their age, um, you know a few key points in, based on your first party data, but there are so many other things about, for example, life stages that client, that, that customer may be in, or about their about their uh, socioeconomic back, background. Um, so, in in terms of looking at what makes your what makes your most valuable customers tick. And what life stages, or what uh, what areas, might they be developing in their in their life that they need new financial products for? You and be, be able to to be be able to anticipate when those are coming and be marketing to them with appropriate messages. That's a perfect example. Um, you know, so from their own first party data, they would never be able to to interpret when some of those changes might be happening.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, that that, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about your investors because you you do have kind of a world class uh, group of investors, including Project A. Um, You know, how have they helped shape the company's success, especially, you know, especially during this pandemic?
1: Yeah, we've been very lucky to have an extremely supportive group of investors. Um, You know, I think they particularly project a is an interesting case because they're not only an investor um, but they're but they do they are operational as well so particularly when you're getting off the ground and I think you know as as new disciplines evolve in your in your business or parts of the technology or you know human resources questions you might have in countries where you're not operating yet with project a in particular it's been a huge help to have their operational team, there to support whenever we need it, so it's really basically an at call um, support team that we can use for different um, you know for different for different challenges that we have. Another example you know they're helping us do a big um, until we take the take the uh, take this in house they're helping us build uh, social advertising ca- so our own advertising campaigns for social networks, generating content, doing a lot of lead gen. Um, you know, so we can outsource that to them. um, And we have a wonderful working relationship with them on the, um, on the marketing, on the marketing front. And, you know, they help us out every once in a while and uh, human resources and things like that. Um, Another investor, um, Jolt out of, out of Paris, has also been, you know, extremely supportive in many ways. And, and, you know, first of all, especially this year, that support comes in the form of, believing that your plan to make it through this very difficult time with a lot of uncertainty that they stand behind you. And you know, that was something that I was very thankful that both of them did um, and really all of our investors did this year.
0: Right. Yeah, That had to be incredibly uh, comforting because it's, uh, it's been a year like no other year.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: On the flip side of the uh, investors, obviously, are your competitors. So, you know, who, who does um, IOTA consider its competitors, and what advantages do you have over them?
1: Yeah, so this actually loops in very well into. There's a couple aspects here. Obviously, on the audience targeting side, you're looking at companies like, like an Oracle Data Cloud, um, like Nielsen, um, partially also the data store in LiveRamp. Whereas, you know, there's those are only those are more pipe relationships than the full serviced, um, you know, sales and, uh, distribution and sales support that we provide for data companies. Um, but this leads me, I think, you know, the other areas is very interesting in terms of one product that I, I didn't mention yet in our portfolio, which is, which is our onboarding. And that is something where it is, it's on the one hand competitive, but actually more, um, more an extension of the way that deterministic onboarding works in the states. So in that aspect, you know that that does put us in competition with it with with companies like uh, LiveRamp and Newstar. However, we approach it in a much different way, um, and because we always have that global view in how can we provide globally consistent methodologies and products that our clients can use in any market we operate we have um we approach onboarding in a much different manner um in a probabilistic uh, in a probabilistic methodology that we're you know we're successfully using for companies like mastercard and experian and gfk across across a total of 35 markets right now um, onboarding offline data assets uh for activation uh, for activation through all of our channels um so this is that is a really big area, and this will be the biggest area of focus for us going into 2021. Bringing the onboarding proposition, Brand Direct, across all the markets where we operate. Um, so, on the one hand, that, that is obviously competitive um, to an onboarding proposition um, like LiveRent, but on the other hand, we're really attacking attacking markets outside of the states for right now. Although the product does you know, is, is also relevant in the States, but we're really focused on providing onboarding solutions um, for brands in, in all of these markets where they, where there is no existing solution today.
0: So you're, so you're going to start um, the, the brand direct um, strategy outside the United States first?
1: Correct. Mainly because it is the largest opportunity for us, Um, you know, in terms of there is, there is no other company that can onboard offline data in 35 countries right now. So that's where we right. see, you know, with the resources that we that we have, we really want to focus on locking down um, locking down those markets and bringing that to bring that as a as a solution where there are no other solutions on market, and obviously eventually uh, moving that into the states as well. Now we do it in the states. So we onboard data for IRI and Experian. So we we have clients onboarding with us in the states. However, you know, it's a harder it's you know it there's more clarification needed because in i think america has a very ingrained um very ingrained deterministic onboarding uh focus so i think you know trying it's it's just a question of it's not a question of if it if it is a product that's relevant for the states it's just a question of where we put our resources first
0: right and is the um and and how is the approach different than your you know the other aspects of your business in terms of selling Selling that product the onboarding side
1: well the difference is really particularly if you look at it compared to the audience targeting it is going it is going brand direct or you know one that has a closer a closer relevance to the brand since the audience targeting generally is mo- for the, for the most part particularly outside of the states is really running through agencies um, you know it's more campaign as a media spend media spend driven. This is a more, you know, this gives us a chance um, between, between the onboarding and the brand solutions with, uh, with enrichment of first party data and, uh, and the modeling and using the data for analytics and measurement. That gives us a really nice rounded out proposition for brands, like I said, to start using this data as, you know, that one set of common, you know, external, external high quality c- common truth set. That they're using that they're using to to measure and and manage their business.
0: Right. Do you do you find that the sales cycle is um is shortened going brand direct and going through the agencies? No.
1: <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, you know, I think also just because it's a uh you know it's a it, no, it's definitely a longer sales cycle. There's no question about that. Um, but it is one that I think Long-term, these are the types of conversations that we want to have. And, you know, I think as, as great as the agencies are great partners for us, but if it comes to using data across many disciplines, that can really only be achieved at the brand level.
0: Right. Sure. That makes sense. Well, my next question is one that actually I've asked. Every CEO has joined our podcast series, which is which is basically this. While most of us have lived through and managed in an economic downturn before, None of us had to manage through a a business through a pandemic. What's unique about you is you took over the CEO's role in December 2019, three months before the global lockdown. So so what was that like from a management perspective? And what lessons have you learned about managing a high-growth company during multiple periods of lockdown? I guess (laughs) Germany's in yet another one right now as we speak.
1: Yeah, it's... uh... Yeah. I, first of all, yes, I could have. I could have thought of an easier way to to step into the job. <laughs> it was. It was. It was not only uh, not only the pandemic. It was the death of the cookie and everything else. Oh, geez. It was one of those things. I guess you know you make it through a year like this and uh, you can chalk up a very large set of experiences that that you right. can draw off of for the future. Um, you know, for for me, it was interesting because in a lot of ways. We have always been a very distributed business. We have always been working remotely in some you know at, at least between our different offices. Um, so some of it was an easy adjustment. Um, I think the most the most difficult thing which no one can prepare you for, and I think probably if something like this came along again, it would be like starting from scratch. Is how do you lead your teams through such such an unbelievable time of uncertainty when you also don't know what's going to happen? Um, you know, I think that worst part was coming into Q two where you're trying to build budgets and trying to make predictions when nobody knew what was going to happen and or how long it was going to last, and trying to you know trying to make sure that your team feels comfortable. Um, and knows that you're going to be open and transparent with them about where things are going and how things are developing. And, and if they have to be worried, I mean, cause you know, staff employees are, we're also, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things to worry about between your family and your jobs. And you see so many people getting furloughed and losing their jobs and, you know, just really trying to give everyone confidence and keep everyone calm and calm and focused um, so that we could continue to deliver through such a, such a really tumultuous time. That was, that was really the the hardest, the hardest part of it. Um, Cause there are no right answers, <laughs> you know, how you want to be transparent. We don't want to scare anybody. And, and, you know, if you don't know what's going to happen yourself, you know, how do you, how do you translate that to, to your teams? And yeah, it's, it was, it was definitely a learning experience.
0: Did your did you feel like your teams were able to um adjust emotionally quickly and then therefore lend great support to each other along the way?
1: Yeah, I think everybody did a really great job. Um you know, I think there there were a couple months where things were you were know, th- every, everyone felt a little shaky. Um you know, we all did. But then as we saw, okay, you know, particularly again as our, as our investors told us that they would stand behind us you know no matter what happened then that gave us all the confidence because you know again you know nobody knew how this year was going to pan out um, you know if if all advertising budgets got 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 decimated uh you know it would have it would have really you know done some damage which thank goodness everything came back pretty pretty strong in Q3 and Q4 um but I think yes, it is. It, I, I would have to say, in terms of productivity and what we turned, to, what we to, what we what we plowed through this year, um, was unheard of. I mean, we the, the teams really focused so much energy on on you know product development and rolling out new features, and you know also rolling out these new products. You know, so for example, the onboarding product, even though. We've had it as a part of onboarding we've been doing for for seven years, um, but, you know, taking it, productizing it outside of our our audience targeting and and just, yeah, the level of the activity was astounding. And it was, yeah, everyone really band together and, and was extremely, extremely uh, productive this year.
0: So did you see a shift when you said that things have really begun to pick up in Q3, began to pick up in Q3 and Q4? Yeah. Um, do you think it's because a lot of the advertisers um, messaging became much more um, um, measurement oriented and therefore, in other words, uh, performance based and therefore data played a much more important a role then and will in the future?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I think everyone took a big sigh of relief when we when we saw the budget start ticking back up. And, you know, the nice thing about programmatic, is you can see, that. In some cases, in in relative relative real time, um, and just also the activity that the team felt on the grounds and talking to their clients and understanding that there was still there w- there was going to be a lot of activity coming into Q three and Q four, which all did materialize. Um, so yeah, and you know, the, I think the focus on data and its importance in 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 very effective strategies, um, is, you know, really also one this year because it is, you know, when you look at a budget and you say, how do I spend, you know, if I have less budget to spend and I want to make sure it's, is as, it's as, uh, as focused as possible, then a lot of people are turning, you know, are turning to data to, to solve that challenge. I think also what was interesting this year is you have, you know, particularly when you look at, the The opportunity for first party data enrichment um, and knowing what these customers look, you know, knowing what your best customers look like. um, This is a year where digital customers are coming online in in rates that nobody would have anticipated. So, for a lot of brands, it's about how do I grab as many of you know, how do I find as many of these new new customers that are coming online as possible, um, and so using data to you know to really enhance to to understand more, how do I find more of these similar types of profiles to be my you know to bring into my customer fold? Um, that's also it has been a really effective strategy this year,
0: right? And well, staying with that theme for a sec. We, you know, we've had GDPR for a few years, and the California Protection Act, and uh, uh, threatened uh, more legislation in California before they got uh, really wallowed by the pandemic. Um, plus, third-party cookies going away at some point in the near future. So, so when you look at the state of data today, what do you think it is, and what, both the challenges and the opportunities for just generally the sector?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the biggest challenges is getting everyone pulling in the same direction when it comes to what the future of how we transact, what what that future will look like. Um, That is, I I would say at the same time, one of our biggest challenges and one of our biggest opportunities. Uh, Right. It is, it's interesting after, after, you know, 22 years in the industry, you, you get, you get used to this rate of, you know, this quick pace of change, but I do have to say, this is probably one of the, you know, in in those years, this is probably the single biggest change that, you know, that I've seen, that I've seen, been a part of so far. Um, but I also think it's really, I think it's exciting. You know, I think it opens up a lot of opportunity and, you know, I'm very excited about the position that we have in the space and our capabilities, um, you know, that are already, that are already rolled out that will, that will able. you know, the, again, the beautiful thing about data is it's very it's it's not necessarily tied to one ID or another, um, and wow. we and you know we can we work very hard to get data with incoming you know incoming uh, data that we ingest in the platform based on multiple types of IDs, different different types of data assets um, that all you know combined give us a lot of flexibility. So I think you know as long as businesses are built um, or are you know catching up very fast to be malleable when it comes to how they are going to how they are going to transact and and what capabilities they have um i think there's a great future ahead because i'm telling you the 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 future is not contextual it is data is not the importance of data is not going to is is not going to disappear as a result of the shift of ids that we use to transact absolutely not
0: well, that's a perfect segue to kind of our final question here, which is uh, to go really broad, you know, we which we'll kind of talk about the state, you know, the, the, the current and future state of ad tech in general, because to me, it certainly feels like we're in a big transition period from what I would call ad tech 2.0, you know, but we're not at ad tech 3.0 yet. So, so do, you, do you agree with that statement And and, and kind of what are your views? And when you think about it more broadly, what are some of the categories that are going to possibly be the winners uh, and and uh, and some that may find uh, challenges, uh, you know, accelerate?
1: Yeah, I would also say we're not quite there at 3.0 yet. Um, you know, I think we're well on the way, but there's just too many there's too many, uh, you know, too many big question marks in what the what the outcome of the I would you know I would say the next year looks like in terms of transactions um, in our in our ecosystem, um, and I you know I I say transactions not only IDs because it's I, you know I think it's going to be based on it's going to be based on on quite a few different things. So where do I see? I mean, I think I think the future um, is definitely going to be a mix. Of, and I'm going to talk specifically about data in this case. I think I think the future of data in this ecosystem will be the right mix of deterministic and probabilistic, and obviously the the focus on on privacy and the consumer first. Um, you know, I think I think that that train has left the station and it's not going back. Um, you know, I think from country all the countries that are now also rolling out. Privacy, you know in increased privacy legislation, that that trend is not going to stop. So I think um, I, I think in terms of the data business, finding these solutions that you know can use can use deterministic data and see data sets as as really as really strong truth sets, and finding probabilistic ways to enhance, uh, you know, in in very smart, intelligent ways of using that data to make smart decisioning and building models off of, that is really where that future is going to lie. Because the reality is, the amount of deterministic data that this ecosystem uses, considering all the complications of privacy, is not going to expand exponentially. And also, really, again, looking at the global view it's also something, it's very, you know, that a pure deterministic play in any of the countries um, outside of the States is also really next to impossible. So it's about, it's about finding that balance. And I think um, that's where I think the future is, is headed for data. Definitely. You know, if you ask me what the biggest topic of this year will be, it obviously is going to be, um, you know, around identity identity resolution and the IDs that we, that we, um, you know, that we transact in.
0: Right. Wow. That is an absolutely perfect way to end what has been a very delightful podcast. I really like, I really like to thank you, (laughs) and and congratulate you and your team at IOTA for not only a decade worth of building a global company, but, but coming through a, uh, an environment that none of us had ever seen before. And obviously in a very strong way. So congratulations. Like to wish you from all of us at Digital Capital Advisor to you, all of you and your family and uh, and uh, all the IOTA team a very happy holiday and let's get out get the hell out of 2020 and get into 2021.
1: <laughs> I like the sounds of that. Thanks so much, Jay. It was it was really right. nice being on your show.
0: Pleasure. Now, bye bye. Take
1: care.